Hey, well, thanks for doing this, Paul Lindman. My pleasure, Carl. It's good to see you again. How do you feel about being part of the good old days? Well, <laughs> I, I couldn't remember the name of your of your uh, concern here, whether it was old Portland TV. I think it was. And I thought, do I qualify for old? I guess I do. Yeah. I feel good about it. No, I put the emphasis on good in the good old days. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> oh, man, you look, uh, you look healthy. Is life treating you well? It really is. Um, you know, like everybody our age or my age, there have been health concerns along the way, but I'm 74. I'm playing golf four and five times a week. I'm still walking the course and carrying my clubs. I'm on my bike a lot. I'm not in the swimming pool anymore because they're not open. Love to swim laps, but, uh, you know, everybody has something. I've had my share of things, but, you know, you, you move on. And I'm thankful for the state of health that my wife and I have. Yeah. In this day and age, we should all be thankful. It's been a wacky year, hadn't it? Oh, man. Been crazy. Absolutely crazy. Well, uh, what I decided to do in this pandemic was uh, call up all my old friends and colleagues on Zoom and interview them and post them on the web. And I've been having a blast. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, yeah. Good for you. Very good creative thinking. I like the idea. Thank you. I, uh, uh, I'm telling all my guests that I do no research. I just go off the memory. And if I screw it up, that's okay. Cause it's the good old days. <laughs> well, you know, uh, Larry King used to never read the books of the authors he had on his guests. And, um, if you do a, a television talk show where your segments are say five to eight minutes, I sometimes think if you don't read the book or at least get into it pretty healthily, you deprive your audience of the best parts. But Larry King said, I want to start where my audience starts. That is knowing nothing about this subject. And, uh, you know, that, that's a good way to do it if you've got an hour or two. You know? yeah. And it worked for him. He did okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, so uh, let's see. You, um, you ended up at K2 right out of Portland State. Is that right? Yeah, I was actually in Portland State, still attending Portland State when I landed at Channel 2 in 67. And it's kind of an interesting story how I got there. I, my intention was to be a sports writer, print sports writer. And I was sports Me too, by the way. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. We never made it, did we? Uh, <laughs> I ended up, I was a sports editor at the Vanguard. I was working at the Oregonian. I worked in a couple of departments at the Oregonian, none of them editorial. And then um, my mother, of all people, one day said, well, you ought to look into television. <laughs> so... I, I just knocked on doors, which was not unusual at that time. And I got, uh, uh, Channel 8 wouldn't let me see their news director. I saw the personnel director there who was an older woman in a print dress who just thought I was crazy. But Channel 2 let me see their news director, a guy named Dick Hawkins. And for some reason, I made a tremendous impression on uh, Dick. And uh, he said, I'll tell you what, we, our entry position here is film editor. Um, we have got a guy who's got a, that job right now who's got a degree in Russian and we don't think he's gonna stay. If you wanna come in on your own and learn how to edit 16 millimeter film, if he ever leaves, you can have the job. And so now I'm going to Portland State, working at the Oregonian in the afternoon and going to Channel 2 at night to learn how to edit film. And the other kid with a Russian degree thought that he was about to be fired and he was training me to take his position. So he went and found another job. Well, that worked out. <laughs> yeah. And I ended up being a film editor for the 11 o'clock news uh -huh. on channel two. Uh, the anchor guy was a guy named Bill Bartholomew. And Carl, the, the important thing about that stage of my life is I realized as a 20 year old young person, 
how much power I really, really had. And it was during the Vietnam era and demonstrations were going on and whatnot. Um, based on how I edited the film, and I always tried to be true to the reporter's script, of course, but I could make a demonstration look absolutely hellacious if a flag was burned, or I could make it look like a sparsely attended affair. Yeah. And I suddenly, I suddenly realized, wow, you know, I'm barely into this industry. I'm 20 years old. I need to be very, very careful here to get this right and to show people what the reporter really wanted to show. That's a and good, that's a good start. That's a good lesson. When you start oh, with that, some of us, yeah. some people, it takes a while to learn that. Yeah, absolutely. And it kind of frightened me. And, um, Back in those days, here's the other thing that frightened me. You'll love this. 16 millimeter film, if we ran an interview piece, the B-roll for that had to be on another projector. Yep. And that had to be on a commercial projector. And I had to get on the station log to find out where to place the B-roll footage for the news interview on the commercial reel, take the commercial reel off the projector, edit in the B-roll and put it back. If I put it in the wrong place, um, Governor McCall might be talking and a Les Schwab commercial would pop up over him. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I was terrified nightly before I put those B-roll films. Anyway. Oh, and the kids these days, they have it so easy with the digital stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I guess they do. I don't. <laughs> I, love, I love the term B-roll that we still use in the industry uh, yeah. as, you know, cover video, but it comes back from those film days when you had an A projector and a B projector. And that's if right. it was a big story, you had a C projector. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, that's uh, interesting how you started there. Um, uh, you know, the sports writer to film editor. Um, I got great advice from my father. I was uh, uh, finishing up my junior year in college and I had uh, two interns lined up, two, two interns lined up internships, uh, mm -hmm. one at the Spokane Chronicle yeah. and it was going to pay me like $500 a month, which was, you know, gold back in the college days. And the other was to intern in the sports department with Al Keck and Scott Lynn at KGW uh -huh. for nothing. And I was leaning towards that $500 a, uh, you know, a month. And, and my yeah. dad said, you know, that, that might be good now, but I don't want you, don't, uh, don't make any decisions now based on money that may affect what you really want to do in the long run. And darn very it, if he wasn't right. <laughs> yeah, very, very wise. One of the thrills for me, Carl, was that, I ended up working my family growing up, we were Channel 8 viewers. And the Channel 8 team, as you probably have been told or remember, was Richard Ross is the anchor, Ivan Smith was one of the anchors, Jack Capel was the weather, and Doug Lemire was a sports guy. Tom McCall Tom was McCall. a political commentator. Yep. That's who I grew up watching. I ended up in my career working with every single one of them. Isn't and that amazing? And I'd be sitting at my desk writing the story for the evening news and Dick Ross would walk in and go, wow, there's Richard Ross. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, um, I tell the story that when my father was a teacher, he took a group of kids over to KGW for their uh, high school college bowl quiz show they had. Yeah, and yeah. and they, they gave us a tour of the studio and he took all of uh, his, we had four kids in the family. Um, and I hopped out of line during the tour and I ran up and on Doug Lemire's sports desk and started pretending to read scores out. <laughs> and what, you know, 15, 16 years later, I was probably seven or eight. Uh, I, my desk was right next to Doug Lemire. <laughs> oh, isn't that funny? Yeah. Yeah. I, love, I love Doug. I, you know, part of my sense of humor is giving people a hard time. My dad said, if you really like somebody, you tease them. So um, I would always <laughs> call Doug Douglas Mir. And later, <laughs> later years, <laughs> Um, when he stopped being a sportscaster and started being an outdoors guy, 
I'd see him in the hallway at Channel 8, and I'd say, excuse me, sir, didn't you used to be Doug Lemire? <laughs> and, and he always called me punk. He'd say, how's it going, punk? And, uh, he called I me him, kid. <laughs> I, saw, yeah, I saw him at the driving range at Eastmoreland one time. He walked out, and I said, hey, Doug Lemire. And he walked over. He says, you know something, punk? Every time I see you, I'm reminded what a dumb shit I was when I was your age. <laughs> and I don't know if I can say that word in this format, but that's sure you can. That's a direct quote. Uh, well, he uh, Doug ended up uh, with a pretty good gig going out and fishing once or twice a week for a few years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the other thing I used to say to him never get old, Doug. They make you go fish, but uh, great relationship. And I did become a sportscaster along the way and hated it, as a matter of fact. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, what bothered you? Well, I, I was a sports director at Channel 2 when um, Art Ekman left. To, Art Ekman was a sportscaster in Portland. Remember that name? Yeah, I do. He, yeah. He was the only sportscaster in America that had two major team affiliations. He left Channel 2 to be the voice of the San Francisco Giants in baseball and the Houston Rockets in basketball. And I took his place when he left. But what I found out was um, it made work out of things that I loved. It made, yeah. you know, and, and if you're a sportscaster, you see a couple innings of baseball and a period of hockey and maybe two quarters of basketball and you have to go back and prepare your stuff. So I wasn't even getting to go to the games and there was a war going on and there was racism issues. And there were so many things that I was interested in that didn't involve sports that um, I, I just didn't enjoy it. <clears throat> and um, I, I, to meet my military obligation, I went into the Ar National Guard and I went and trained in artillery and I was gone for four months. And when I came back, the law said that Channel 2 had to give me the same job I had when I left. And so I came back and they said, OK, you're sports director. And I said, no, I don't want to be sports director. And they said, well, this is our obligation met. We've offered you the same position you left. So that's all we have. I said, well, then I'll see you. And then they said, OK, you can be a reporter. <laughs> so, so I stayed. You know, my switch out of sports was not as profound. It was a different time, obviously, but I kind of the same deal. I did it for six years at Channel 8, and I just decided, you know, I was just tired of putting such an important emphasis on, on, on something that was really so insignificant to our society and our community. I mean, I'm still a sports fan. I'll admit that. But I just, you know, I, did, I didn't want to be putting on, you know, who's, who was making a million dollars with their contract this year. And I, I just... Um, and, and I think at that time also, I've had this conversation with Steve Arena, it was getting so low on the totem pole in our newscast yeah. that you didn't get the resources and nobody cared about the work that I did. And I wanted to do other work that meant something. And so right. I was lucky enough that I had a news director uh, who could be critiqued for many reasons, positive and negative, but I was lucky that he uh, trusted me and moved me into the news department to start doing stories. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I had an opportunity when I was at the Oregonian to become a sports writer, which was really my goal. I mean, I was, I was like a lot of people that ended up in broadcasting a serious introvert, a very shy person. And when I was at the Oregonian working in these other departments, George Becerra, who was sports editor of the journal, mm -hmm. would call me every few months and say, hey, come on down here and write high school sports. And I'd say, well, Mr. Becerra, um, I'm making... 295 an hour here in the mailroom and you only paid $1.60 an hour and I can't afford, I'm putting myself through school. I can't afford to do that. And he would cuss me out on the phone and tell me <laughs> I wasn't serious about journalism and hang up. And then he'd call me again in a couple of months. But um, when you go to work for the Oregonian back then, you were required to do an interview with the personnel director, even after you had the job. 
and talk about future goals and whatnot. And um, early on, the guy's name was Frank Lesage. And he said, what's your lifetime goal? I said, I'm going to be a sports writer. I said, how's your memory? He said, how's your memory? I said, it's terrible. I said, <laughs> he said, you can't be a sports writer. You have to remember. I mean, I didn't remember who played in the World Series last year. Yeah. Um, and he said, just forget that. And years later go by, decades go by, I'm giving a speech to the old Zion Society at the Mac Club. And I related the story of the personnel director who talked me out of being a, a sports writer. He was in the audience. The stage <laughs> was? <laughs> and he yelled out, you had a horrible memory. <laughs> <laughs> but I so, remembered that story, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hey, that's a good feather in your cap that you got cussed out by George Pacero. Not many people have that one. Oh, a couple of times. I mean, he, I don't know how, how things would have changed if I would have gone downstairs and, and gone to work for the journal. But um, when I was uh, sports editor of the Vanguard at Portland State, I had a column called The Second Stringer, which I really thought was a great column name for a sports writer. Sure. And he would lift my column occasionally. And he had to fill his column, of course, every single day. And so he's always looking for stuff. But I was always so honored, if not all of it, major chunks of my column. And he would, he would put them in the paper. And so he knew about me and he knew I could write a little bit and tried to make a, a way for me. And I just had to say no. And he, he was kind of a profane outspoken fella so he let me know how he felt about that. I, I got cussed out by Dwight James once you're kidding <laughs> no it, it I, just, I, I, know, I know Dwight I'm not surprised <laughs> no it, it's a I love the story and I've told it to him I was an intern at Channel 8 at a Beavers game and he was the Portland Beavers beat writer and the Beavers were you know the AAA baseball team yeah. and you know I was overdoing it I was keeping score for the game nobody cared we we're gonna only show two highlights or whatever but something happened and I didn't know if it was an error or a hit so I went down into the into the scores area down there at the bottom of the Civic Stadium and I and I went to who I thought was the official scorer for the game and looked over his shoulder at his scorebook and it wasn't the official score it was oh, no. Dwight and he oh, no. turned around and said who the blank are you and what the blank are you doing yeah <laughs> i went sorry i thought you were the official scorekeeper <laughs> yeah and you're the tv guy looking at the oh news yeah notes. yeah he, he he knew that i was <laughs> the uh, the tv intern or whatever but yeah so i've had a good laugh with Dwight about that i deserved it so that's good. you know this business this rivalry between tv people and and print people back in the day oh yeah um, there used to be an oregon sports writers and sportscasters association in portland I, mm -hmm. does it still exist i don't even know i doubt it um we had monthly luncheons and there was a clear division between the print guys and the broadcast guys but there was one print guy who not only was overly kind to me and made sure he came up and visit with me, but he knew all of my stats from playing high school baseball at Wilson High School. He said, Paul Lemon, and he rattled off these stats. I said, talk about a sports writer's memory. Yeah. He said, how do you, he said, well, I covered Wilson. I covered you guys, you're a good baseball team. And uh, Bill Muffler was his name. Yeah. He passed away just this year. One of the oh. finest gentlemen I've ever known. I and knew Bill. He Bill actually knew my dad, and and because uh, my dad was a coach over in Vancouver, um, and Bill printed a few of my freelance articles when I was in high school. I, cool. you know, I hey, Mr. Mofler, I'm Bill Click's son. I'm you know I want to be a writer, and he did that. He was really nice. He was a nice guy. Yeah, great guy, great guy. So how did you make the switch <clears throat> to city politics, Paul? Well, I was at Channel 2 for uh, six years initially, starting in 1967, and um, Neil Goldschmidt got elected mayor. Mildred Schwab was appointed to his 
uh, empty city council position. Boy, now talk and, about the good old days. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Frank Ivancy was on the city council in those days, and he had a, uh, an assistant named Pat. And Pat was a fan of mine for some reason. And she told Mildred, you have to have Paul Lemon come to work for you to do wow. your meeting and so forth. And so Mildred uh, called me and we had a conversation about it. And I really, my goal was, you know, I wasn't that thrilled with television at the time. And, and I wanted to see what, I've always been interested in politics. I wanted to see what local government was all about. So I worked for Mildred for five years. I became her executive assistant. I wrote nice. her speeches. I walked her dog. <laughs> and um, <laughs> it was it was an interesting time for me because I got to see how things worked on the inside. And, um, and, and back then, things, there, things worked uh, a little differently. There were a lot of behind-the-scenes <laughs> stuff going on. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I know, you know Neil Goldschmidt ran into a lot of trouble later on in his political career. Mildred Schwab uh, was uh, very well-respected, and you could always tell she had uh, the, uh, the best interest of our city uh, in, yeah. her, uh, in her sights. Yeah. She was a little bit crazy in certain ways, was, <laughs> Yeah, you know, uh, went off in anger a lot. But the really cool thing about working for her, Carl, was that people didn't know or remember. She set out to be a concert pianist and, really? and left that field because she found it to be a very lonely life. She was one of the most solitary people I've ever known. I mean, other than her brother, Herb Schwab, who was on the Court of Appeals, no real family, you know lived alone but she became a entertainment industry lawyer and she had clients like you would not believe um she'd call me in my office one day and she'd say paul come on in here i want you to meet uh, ferrandi and teicher or paul come in here and i want you to meet um, who was the actor that played mark twain for so many years hal holbrook yeah come hal holbrook's here come in and say <laughs> and one of the strangest nights in my entire life Van Cliburn, the concert pianist, was a great friend of Mildred's and she represented him. And um, she asked me if I would drive Van Cliburn and her to Eugene for a concert at Matt Court one night. And I don't know if you have time for the story or not, but it was one of the most bizarre stories of my entire life. You better do it. <laughs> We've all heard the whale story, Paul. Tell yeah. us this one. <laughs> well, so he's got a concert at seven o'clock at Matt Court. So Eugene, if you drive fast, is an hour and 45, right? Yeah, if you're lucky. Uh, back in the day. <laughs> and um, we went to pick him up at his hotel at the Benson at 5.30 for a seven o'clock concert in Eugene. He had a grand piano in his suite. I don't know if the piano always lived there or if it was just there for Van Cliburn. But we walked into his suite and he was practicing. So we sat down and he played. And here I am alone with Mildred and Van Cliburn is playing the piano. Fantastic. He plays for 15 or 20 minutes. I'm going, we got to get out of here. <laughs> and we finally get on the road. It's pouring down rain. I'm driving Mildred's old Chrysler station wagon. It's hard to see the freeway. It's just a mess. And Van Cliburn is like the nicest person in the world. And he says, I feel terrible. You are not getting your dinner, you two. We have to stop and get some food. And I said, Mr. Cliburn, we, we can't. We, you're going to be late for this concert. And his deal was he wanted no backstage time. He came out of the hotel in white tie and tails, and he wanted to walk from the car onto the stage and play. And he was trying to time that in such a way, but he really didn't know the distance or the time. Long story short, he finally insisted that we stop at a gas station. He walked in there in his tails. He brought out a sack full of 
Cheetos, <laughs> junk food. And he Poor said, dog. sorry, but this is your dinner, you know, and we drove on. I go scream into the mat court. He walks out. I'm telling you, I think we were an hour late and he walks in, plays the concert, which was wonderful. Comes back out. Now the Eugene Symphony Society is having an after event dinner for Ben Clyburn at the Eugene Hotel. So we go over there. He hasn't eaten a thing that in all the time we've been there. He eats a full on steak dinner at this dinner at the hotel and then asks for a second one and he eats a second one. The guy is skinny as a rail. <laughs> so we drive back to Portland and it's like two in the morning now. And we're coming up I-5 and I lived over near Multnomah at the time with my new wife and our first home. And I think we had one or two kids at the time. And Van Clyburn, I said to Mildred, Mildred, we're near my exit here. Can I get out and you can drive Van Clyburn the rest of the way back to the hotel? Sure, let's, we'll let you out. Van Clyburn says, Paul, does your wife cook? I said, oh yeah, she does. He says, does she make soup? I said, oh, she makes wonderful soup. He said, wonderful. We're stopping at Paul's house for soup. And I said, no, we are not. And he said, we're not. I said, I am not waking my wife up at 2.30 in the morning and telling her Van Clyburn and Mildred Schwaber in the living room and want soup. He died laughing. He got those Mildred comes dragging into City Hall the next morning. I'm there at eight o'clock and here she is, same clothes and everything. I said, Mildred, didn't you get home last night? She said, oh no, Van and I went and uh, ate pancakes at Quality Pie Shop on 23rd. I just got back. <laughs> it was an insane night. Oh, see, you know, there are people who've been in the business and around like you have, have, you know, three or four of those wonderful, incredible stories that I'm glad yeah. that we're learning now. <laughs> Yeah, the guys I play golf with are sick of them, believe oh, me. Oh, sure. <laughs> so what enticed you back to, uh, you went back and you went to Channel 8 uh, for, it was, was it Good Evening when you went back or had it changed yeah. to PM Magazine? No, it was the evening show. Dick Klinger had gone to Seattle uh, okay. to work up there and Robin Chapman was still hosting. So it was the evening show. And I think we did that for about a year, maybe two years before it became PM Magazine. But what enticed me back was... Um, uh, I, I felt that I'd had enough local government and I'd learned what I wanted to learn and um, there was no real place to go from there. So I went back into broadcasting and you weren't going to run for office. No, although that opportunity became available later, which I didn't follow up on, but um, I, I decided that broadcasting might be a little more satisfying than politics. So that's what I did. So that uh, evening, good evening or evening, it started as evening, I guess, right? And then uh, became PM Magazine. Was it was a unique uh, time in broadcast history when, you know, after the news, after the nightly news for the networks, we would have a, a, a local show with local hosts. Off, most of the time, especially on evening, local stories, uh, yeah. long format stories. So that was a nice place to, uh, to be a, a host and a storyteller in that atmosphere it really was and it was all features of course and you know mostly positive stuff but i don't know if you remember did you ever work with regan ramsey our producer he was our news director at channel eight and That's um and i had one of these best podcasts i had about three weeks ago was with regan uh, yeah. basically uh, telling him i did you scared the hell out of me i didn't understand you and then after this conversation it was like oh i get it now yeah yeah <laughs> he was well, a genius and i just didn't know it when i was 23 years old 
but he sure didn't look it, did he? With the big mustache and the long hair and, and his language. And yeah, I, I explained Regan and I love Regan Ramsey. We were heavy drinkers at the time and we just bombed the world everywhere we went. But um, I explained to Regan, he, the golf club he's a member at, if you look at the wall in the locker room, his listed occupation is astronaut. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, but Regan had, he was a person of means, shall we say. And he would go into the bosses at Channel 8 when we were on PM Magazine and say, hey, uh, I want to take the program to the Snow Festival in Sapporo, Japan. And Channel 8 would say, we're not paying for that. And he'd say, well, we're going. And we'd go. And Regan would pick it up. So we did the Snow Festival in Japan. We trekked in Nepal. I mean, I can't begin to tell you, Carl. Uh, Every ski resort in America, we just had a ball and we were the only PM Magazine show that was truly national and international in scope because Regan paid the way for us to go to all these wonderful places. And he and I would just have unbelievable nights and we were both golfers. So there was a lot of golf involved and um, some of my happiest years were the, the traveling years with PM Magazine and Regan Ramsey because of the wonderful places we got to go. Well, I, I, uh, anybody watching or you go back and watch the one podcast I did with Regan because it was really enlightening for me. Uh, so I hope people enjoy that. Um, I will. I will. You, were, uh, you started with Robin Chapman, who I had a huge crush on when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, then Cheryl Hansen uh, mm-hmm. came from the news department weather, and she hosted that with you for a while. Right, right. And then uh, after that period, I went back to Channel 2. Right. And you went back to Channel 2 for that afternoon talk show. Am I right? Two at four? Yes. yes. Yeah. And I named it and I thought it was a brilliant name because it not only said the name of the show, it said what time it was on and on what channel. Yeah. But uh, there, was a, there was a time in that, which was, uh, I guess, uh, 90s and a little bit into 2000s, where all the local stations were trying things at four o'clock. Yeah. Uh, six tried a newscast. And it didn't work. You know, the, everybody was thinking we need local viewership to lead into our five o'clock news. They tried it. It didn't work. Channel eight came around about a year later and they were going to do it. And I remember the big meeting about we're going to have a four o'clock news and we're going to get this audience and we're going to carry them across all these time slots. And I just looked around and they hired a whole bunch of people. I said yeah. it did not work at coin. And, you know, sure enough, about eight, nine months later, they were laying people off. Yeah. Um, that was a different, it wasn't a news program. It was kind of like an AM Northwest in the afternoon, right? Exactly. Our very first guest was Peter Lawford. And, I, uh, in person? Yeah. And we wanted to get some, a name for our very first interview. We wanted to get a very big name. And um, Peter Lawford, some agent scored us Peter Lawford, and we we're quite thrilled about that. And we were warned that Mr. Lawford had an alcohol problem. And, <laughs> you um, think? <laughs> yeah, and not to not to make sure that he wasn't imbibing before he came on the program. Um, he arrived at Channel Two over on Sandy Boulevard, and our general manager at the time invited him into his office, and they had a few drinks. <laughs> <laughs> Does that tape exist now? <laughs> I don't. I hope not. I hope not. Oh, it's just awful. It was just awful. But uh, the how the show stopped. Uh, its run was kind of interesting because they, when I went from eight to two, they promised us five years uh, on this afternoon show and they canceled us after three years. And uh, they call us, uh, you know, come into the program director's office right after the show. You know what that means. Yep, <laughs> Been there. Yeah. So we went, all went in and they said, um, 
you're done. And we said, why? Well, the truth was Channel 2 had been purchasing just about every syndicated talk show they could and putting them on in the middle of the night or whatever to protect our morning show and our afternoon show so that other stations in the market wouldn't buy these and put them on against us. Well, they bought a show that nobody had ever heard of, least of all me. And I said, what are we being replaced by? And they said, it's called Oprah. <laughs> I said, what's Oprah? You know, boy, did I ever find out. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> that was the end. But then they said, but Paul, we want you to stay and anchor the news. And um, boy, I really didn't want to do that. Not, hmm. not, not in the worst way. Um, because I, you know, the, the news was so negative and, and mostly bad news. And I said, no, 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 no. And, um, this is really great, Carl. I was about, I have four grown sons and I was about to send the first off to college and we would have sons in college for the next 13 years. Yeah. And, um, channel two must've thought I was the greatest negotiator in the world because another one of my life's goals was to be a newspaper columnist. I'd written a column for the Oregon Magazine and other publications, but I wanted to be a Doug Baker who had the city column in the journal for many years. And I was actually negotiating with the Oregonian at that moment to go down there and be that columnist. So my dream job was on the horizon and Channel 2 is trying to talk me into staying. And to do your not dream job. <laughs> yeah. And um, they must have thought I was the toughest negotiator in the world because I just said no to every offer they laid out. And finally... They laid out an offer I couldn't duplicate in L.A. or New York. And um, as a person of faith, um, I, I said to my wife at some point during this process, I said, they said that Lord, the Lord's timing is perfect. I'm not getting an answer about what I should do here. And she said, you'll get your answer. Well, she's also the Vicky's also the money person in our household. So when the final offer came from Channel 2, um, I called Vicki and I gave her the numbers and she said, well, I guess the Lord has given you an answer. <laughs> so the, I, Lord, the Lord works in mysterious commas. Yeah. <laughs> well, good for you. Yeah. Uh, well, then, then uh, quite possibly that was the time when your co-host there, Margie, she did go to the Oregonian and she did start writing a column. In fact, uh, when I missed the opportunity. Margie asked me, would you mind if I talked to them? I said, please go right ahead. Yeah. The rest and is that was a 20 year great history for her there at the Oregonian. But the good part for me out of that, Carl, was that as much as I dreaded doing the news, those were in the day Steve Dunn and I, well, first it was uh, not Steve, it was Gianola. No, it was, um, oh, this is going to drive me crazy. It was a woman. Oh, I, forgive me. Melissa Mills. Melissa Mills. Okay, Melissa good. Mills. Yeah. And then later, Steve and I teamed. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we were getting 20s and 26s ratings. And I mean, we were killing it at 630. And to me, there was nothing thrilling about reading the news, except the station asked me to do a series um, for a campaign called Spirit of the Northwest. They asked me to do 20 stories on ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Great. I did those 20 things. They hung a, a campaign off it that made Channel 2 the Spirit of the Northwest Station. A very successful uh, station identification campaign. And at the end of uh, the 20 stories, they said, what do you want to do now? I said, I want to keep doing these. And they said, what do you need to do to do that and continue to anchor the news? I said, I need a photographer permanently assigned to me and we'll work outside of the assignment desk. They said, you've got it. Nice. 
guy named Mike Sloick, wonderful guy, tremendous shooter, became my personal photographer. And we traveled as a team. Carl, there's not a television station in America, a reporter in America, who's done 1,215 stories. But that's how many stories we did in the Spirit of the Northwest series over the years. And so I would read about some inspirational person in the paper or somebody that had done something really amazing and be with them the next day. And it was just just heaven uh, for a journalist to always be dealing in the positive and the uplifting and to be learning how these people were motivated and why they did what they did and put their stories on the air. I mean, that was my favorite time in broadcasting ever. What a gift that was. And, and, and what a gift you and your photographer were to be able to share that with, uh, with Oregon and, and the Portland market. That's, uh, you know, that's, there are things about our business that were difficult and we didn't like, but when you got to those opportunities where you could do what you did with that series, right. uh, it, that's, that's what makes you look back at a career and go, yeah, I, I did what I wanted to do. Spot on. Spot yeah. on. And so years later, we haven't really talked about it, but years later, I wrote this book called The Exploding Whale. Yeah, you know, I was thinking this was going to be a whale-less conversation, but I realized it can't. Well, it just can't. Well, we don't <laughs> need to go any further than that, but the subtitle is Other Remarkable Stories from the Evening News. And yeah. so what I did was alternate chapters on the people in that Spirit of the Northwest series that impressed me the most. Mm -hmm. And um, <laughs> the interesting thing for me is that Philip Marglin, who's a local successful fiction writer and lawyer, yeah, um, he loved this book so much. He asked, "Can I share it with my New York agent for possible national distribution?" I said, well, "Sure." Yeah. So he did, and she took the book to all the major publishing houses in New York. They all had the same response: "We like the chapters about the whale, but what are all these other people?" <laughs> Well, that's, well, that you know, that. <laughs> that's what I was going to tell you, or at least ask you about the whale story. I mean, we've all heard it. We all know it. It's tremendous. Yeah. Uh, but it's, and it's, you know, it puts you on the map and it kept you on the map. It, it probably a little bit of a burden as well, wasn't it? Yeah, it's kind of a love-hate thing. You know, <laughs> because what people don't realize is the thing, the reason it stayed alive for 50 years, and this was its 50th year this in 2020, is because it became new again to those seeing it for the first time. Sure. And I'd run into partners. Hey, we were in Italy and they were running this whale story. Did you, or in Japan or wherever. And um, I had a young golf pro at Portland golf club uh, come up to me uh, just, I think it was last year. And she said, Hey, you're the, you're the exploding whale guy. And I said, yeah. And she said, I can't even believe it. Well, she had just seen it, had never seen it before. And then she said, and Paul, you were actually good looking when you were young. So I'm running into stuff like that for 50 years. <laughs> and and um, I don't know if you can see it, but the lowest picture on that wall over there is a metal plate of a, of a uh, graduate school in Oslo, Italy called Simba, Consortium Institute of Management and Business Analysis. And they contacted me years ago, a guy named Al Ringleb, who founded the school. Um, it, 50 American universities feed grad students into this university in Italy, just outside of Venice. And uh, they were using my book as a text in their international problem solving curriculum. And they asked me if I would come over and lecture. Hmm. We've done it three times now, and we'll probably go back again. But of all the things the whale has meant in my life, not all of them that tremendous, including young women talking about how you used to look, 
um, those trips to Italy were the big payoff for us. Nice. You know, there's there's the good and the bad, and, and I'm willing to take them both on. Yeah. Well, that's what life's all about: is the good and the bad, and and where it takes you in it. Uh, and it, uh, your career took you to radio, which, uh, um, you did mornings at KEX at least a dozen years, right? Well, I went to KEX in 2003 and lasted until 2016. I did mornings and then I did the midday show. I still substitute for Mark Mason on his midday program when he's mm -hmm. away, I host it. And I still do weekly commentaries at KEX. Um, I, I had never worked in radio. I has always wanted to. And the big, the big push uh, to leave television for radio, everybody thinks you're nuts for doing so. First of all, financially, it was advantageous, which was a surprise to me. Second of all, high def was coming along. And, and I, <laughs> I had a pretty good idea what this old face would look like. Yeah, the, let me just tell you, the high def makeup is very expensive. <laughs> yeah, and I, I guess you just spray it on. I mean, I... <laughs> I, I can do eyeliner faster than anybody. I'm not sure anybody does that anymore in high def, but uh, I, de I decided it was time to get my face off TV. And I had this wonderful woman, a uh, Greek woman who I'd done the Greek festival for and a family friend um, <laughs> come up to me in the store and say, Paul, I hear you're going to radio. I just want you to, you to know, I think you have a perfect face for radio. And I said, yeah, yeah, a lot of people have been making that joke to me. She says, no, 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 I'm not joking. I, I mean it. You have a perfect face for radio. So I made the right move. Uh, I think she meant voice, but she got confused. No, she uh, meant face. Uh, so um, I, I'm guessing now, but uh, that stint on radio, uh, I would hope that you had a lot more control over what you were going to do in your show. And it was your baby, right? Yeah, pretty much. Um Things have changed. I had a producer when I went down there, and then I soon didn't have a producer. And the format, it's an interview format, and mainly you're interviewing correspondents who are covering major stories. And so you work directly with ABC and their reporters and so forth. So within that context, you got to pick the subjects every day and the reporters that were covering the stories you thought your audience was most interested in. But it wasn't like... Um, I chose every guest or could do exactly what I wanted within the program. And news talk is a little, you know, as you know, is a lot different than opinion radio and, and, and talk radio as, as it's done in other places. I mean, you, you stay with the facts, you stay with the story. And, and um, it's kind of funny being a news person all those years, I would try to keep things fair and give both sides equal, you know, time and play and so forth. And that's not what radio wanted. Radio wanted yeah. And um, so when I left uh, KEX in 2016 and they asked me to continue to do commentaries, um, they created this open for my commentary. I don't know if it's still being used because I don't hear it anymore, but the announced voice says, turns out he actually did have an opinion or two. <laughs> <laughs> He's not and, done. <laughs> and, and I knew all along my refusal to express a personal opinion was not what radio wanted, but with a news background, I just, I couldn't do it. Now I express opinions quite strongly in my commentaries and it stuns people, you know? Yeah. I get response saying, why would you say that? And, and why are you not being fair? Well, I'm expressing an opinion now. And 
happened. So yeah. that's, that's one of the big problems about uh, the perception of news is that uh, I don't think people can distinguish between uh, reporting and opinion. Yeah. And, you know, you know, if you watch the cable news stations, uh, you know, there's there's some news there. Uh, but then they just they just sweep right into panelists and opinion, and it all mm-hmm. gets mixed up that people don't understand that. And I've had this conversation with people, you know, because you know I'm I'm saddened by how news is perceived these days. Is I've had the conversation. Listen, I can watch that news program with you, and I say that's a report, that's news. There are the sources. Okay, they're shifting to analysis, and this is opinion. And because even now. On, you know, on CNN, MSNBC, and Fox, it's it's basically what opinion radio was ten years ago. Yeah. Is you're not going to get people watching if you don't have people arguing, yeah, or you're not telling people what they want to hear, right? And you layer social media onto that, Carl, where yeah. anybody can say anything they darn well please. And um, I really, I do not participate in any social media platforms whatsoever. And never have, which is another thing that doesn't help you much when you're trying to have a radio career because you're expected to be communicating with the audience on all these platforms. Mm-hmm. And I would not. Yeah. Um, there is a reason that every man hasn't been given a voice. <laughs> <laughs> now, every man has been given a voice. And I do believe it's caused more problems on our society. I, you talk this way, you sound like an old, you know what, that is opposed to the digital age and so forth. Not me. I love the internet. I love the fact that I can carry uh, in my pocket more information than all the libraries of the world contain. Um, But I really hate what social media has done to us in terms of what you're talking about, truth telling and discerning between what is true and what is not. It's uh, it's scary. And between the cable networks and the the opinion, like the, the local talk show guy that says, Hey, it's easy. Why doesn't the city of Portland just do so-and-so? Or it's easy. Why doesn't the governor just do so? No, it's not easy. It's not simple. It's complex. And you can sit in the radio and talk about how dumb the the decision makers are. And sometimes they are. But uh, your simplistic view of how we solve this problem wouldn't work in a thousand years. Yet they're able to state that. And everybody says, yeah, the governor's an idiot. Why'd you do that? And nobody pays attention to the news reporter who goes down to City Hall, asks the questions and comes back and says, here's why it's difficult to do, because these are all the things that have to happen. Uh, It'd be nice if it were simpler and maybe we can make it simpler. But um, there are there are reasons that things have to be the way that they are. That's right. And we all you and I appreciate the uh, news reporters who are out there on the beat and getting the job done. I hope they're still allowed to get into the details of the, all the minutiae that's behind all this stuff. Sometimes I wonder anymore if, like, do, do television stations have beat reporters anymore? Do they have somebody going to the Board of Higher Education and the school board? And, the, I, and I, don't, you know? I, I don't think it, there's an emphasis. On, you know, I, I can remember when we had a city hall reporter and we had a bureau in Salem. Mm-hmm. And uh, those things probably don't uh, carry the weight that they do or that they did because because those local news stations have to compete with the show that's on Fox and the show that's on MSNB and they got to get viewers. And, uh, yeah, but again, that's why we're from the good old days, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So, uh, boy, you know, it's, it's nice to hear your story and the things that you got to do and the things that you wanted to do and any regrets, anything not getting done or anything you'd do differently. Well, 
you know, you look back and you think about the decisions you've made and you wonder, you know, where the road would have taken you if you'd made the opposite decision, decision and stuff. There, there are, um, you know, I, I coached my sons in, in baseball and basketball. I wish I would have been a little more serious about parenting. I mean, fortunately, because they had a wonderful mother uh, and Vicki and I will celebrate 53 years of marriage next week. Uh, they all turned out fantastic, but I wish I would have given more attention to my mm -hmm. sons. Uh, I was known in the neighborhood as the dad who was always with his boys and, and so forth and so on. But um, I was into career and, you know, 10,000 other things. And um, I, I would, if, if I have a regret, that is it. But having said that, I have lived a blessed life. I have a wonderful family. Uh, I now have six grandchildren and, mm. and they're all great. And I have three, I've always wanted a daughter. Now I have three wonderful daughter-in-laws <laughs> and, uh, and I, I am blessed. And, you know, Carl, if I have a problem right now, it's, this is feeling a lot like retirement. Um, I'm still doing freelance video projects. I work with a, a shooter named Jim Standridge, who's a full-length movie maker. And we just completed a four-year project for the Portland Clinic, which we love doing. Um, I have writing projects that, that, that I'm doing, one of which is with my son. And so I have work that keeps me going, but I'm deadline oriented, you know, and if, if there's not a deadline, I, I kind of let things slide. And I'm still doing commentaries on KEX, but there are days of the week, especially during the COVID, when I think I've got no work that I really need to do today. And as a person who has never sought retirement as a goal, um, Al Roker once said, if you love what you're doing, why would you want to stop? And, and that's my attitude. This is not an easy time for me. This is a challenging time for me. Well, I'm sorry that's that way. And my advice is to, to get out and uh, solve that problem on the golf course. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm on my way. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. Well, Paul, I, it, it's been a, a pleasure to have you here and just to chat. I mean, I call it a podcast and people get to watch it. But for me, it's just a blast to talk to old friends and hear old stories and to be able to tell people like you that uh, I, I think, uh, you know, the mark you left in our, our city and our market uh, is uh, a treasured one. And, and I'm glad that in small pieces, I was able to cross paths with you. Well, right back on you, Carl. You've always been known as a good guy, a competent guy, a true professional, but uh, one of the nicest people I've encountered in broadcasting. And, and uh, there's a lot of good people in our field and you're at the top of the pack. And now that I know about you and your podcast, I'm going to go back and catch up with all these other folks that you've been talking to and see what they have to say. But thanks for including me in the group. Um, any reluctance I had about participating in something called old time Portland television has flown away. I'm thrilled to have been a part of it. And thank you very much. Well, remember, it's the good old days. Thank you, Paul, very much. Appreciate it. We'll see you down the road. Thanks, girl. Thanks, girl.